This is Macro Horizons, episode 62. It's still Q1, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 30th. And as the first quarter comes to an end, and every week feels like a month, we're reminded there are still three more quarters to go. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. It's a little question that it has been something of a harrowing week in financial markets between the very dramatic swings in equity prices combined with some of the underperformance and subsequent outperformance of certain risk assets. The credit markets in particular have been especially volatile at this point. What is interesting is that we actually haven't seen the same degree of volatility in the treasury market. The bulk of the volatility that was triggered in the treasury market as a result of liquidity constraints has apparently run its course. Now, the Fed has done a great deal to ensure that this has happened between moving monetary policy rates to the effective lower bound and implementing a limitless QE program. The argument can be made that the Fed has done enough and everything that it possibly can to ensure the functionality of financial markets. Now, how does that translate through to valuations is an entirely different question. What the biggest debate is at the moment in financial markets is whether or not equities have put in the bottom for the cycle, or if this is simply a bear market reversal, which will ultimately resolve with lower stock prices as the realities of the recession facing the U.S. economy come into focus. To suggest that there is an answer for that question at this point is somewhat folly, However, it is worth acknowledging that the process of price discovery has been enhanced by the amount of liquidity that the Fed has put into the system. In addition to ensuring the functionality of the system, what we have seen from Congress is a $2 trillion stimulus program. There are good and bad aspects of the stimulus program from the perspective of financial markets. On the upside, there is the direct injection of cash on the household level. Now that is going to lead to consumption, or more practically, that is going to limit the spending hit that will result in the number of job losses that we're already starting to see ripple through across the economy. The initial jobless claims of 3.3 million was more than five times the previous record high for a given week, and it reflects a rapid response on the part of business owners to lay off employees and hunker down for the lockdown, which is currently in place for the U.S. economy. Beyond simply looking at the statistics of coronavirus cases and mortality, 
the market has become more focused on estimating how long the lockdown will be in place, whether it is a issue of weeks or issue of months has differing ramifications for economic growth. The rumblings out of Washington and the White House in particular is that less is more in this case. And so the notion that we could see some aspects of the economy back to full functioning by Easter has made the rounds and on the margin been supportive for risk assets. The flip side comes from a lot of the health experts who are advising not sticking to any predetermined timeline and instead following the evolution of the outbreak and responding accordingly. So as it currently stands, most areas which are in some sort of lockdown have no definitive date to reemerge. Now, this will change over the course of the coming week or two and presumably be particularly useful in estimating the overall impact on the real economy. Recall that the primary objective of the Fed and Washington at this stage is to create a bridge of access to liquidity for both businesses and individuals to weather the virus storm. Now, what we have seen over the course of the last week suggests that this has been occurring and the confidence taken away by investors has been encouraging, at least thus far. We're still very early in the process. Well, it appears that the curve is flattened and contagions peaked in China and parts of Europe, that remains to be seen as concerns about a second wave will surely continue to permeate markets. So now that Washington has sprung into action, what's next? Well, that's the biggest question in financial markets at the moment. We have gone from tracking tick for tick the coronavirus cases and mortality to ignoring the incoming economic data that has been clearly impacted by the outbreak. And as a result, the treasury market has found something of an equilibrium point that I find quite fascinating. In 10-year yields, we're at roughly 75 basis points, and a range of 10 basis points on either side of that has been in place over the course of the last week. Now, this historically has been very telling of a market that is coiling and is poised for some type of a breakout. Whether that's a bullish breakout or a bearish breakout will ultimately be dictated by the performance of other asset classes. The nuance to this particular episode, however, is that so much of the volatility experienced in the first half of March was a function of liquidity concerns, the dash for cash that ultimately drove bill yields negative and put upward pressure on 10 and 30 year rates. The Fed series of initiatives, whether it was cutting the policy rate to the effective lower bound, reintroducing QE, or the array of programs that they have brought online to provide liquidity, have done just that. They have instilled a sense of calm, particularly in fixed income markets. We've also seen that translate through on the equity side. One of the biggest questions that we've been getting recently is whether or not the bounce that we've seen in domestic equities is valid or simply a bear market bounce and will ultimately retrace the lows and extend the bottom of the range even further. That's beyond a difficult question. In fact, that's the essential question at the moment. If the market is saying the events that have transpired over the course of 2020 are closer to a natural disaster, like a hurricane, and the 
real economy can bounce back without sustaining too much durable damage, then that makes a pretty good case for suggesting that the equity lows are already in. The flip side, and this is the aspect that we were the most worried about, and that's that the amount of damage done to the real economy, consumer sentiment, and the employment market will in and of itself become a financial crisis, strain the banking system, and take much longer to rebound than any other natural disaster. And to dig into the second argument a little bit more, I think one of the nuances that I've been trying to pay attention to is March has been an incredibly dramatic month, but a lot of what drove the hyper volatility we've seen, I would argue, is kind of around the liquidity dynamic. Huge amount of redemptions in a lot of funds, dislocations of ETFs versus their underlying NAVs, and What the Fed's programs outside of cutting to zero and starting QE, what a lot of the programs really have been done is to try to improve market functioning and improve liquidity. Now, as you pointed out, Ian, if the argument is that this is more akin to a natural disaster, whereby you get through the liquidity problem and then everything's hunky-dory, great. The issue, though, is these facilities are not designed to address underlying solvency concerns. So by that, I mean that the market has dropped notably on sentiment and liquidity and partially revised economic projections if the market continues to update and revise lower its medium-term economic forecast that leads to lower earnings projections and a lower overall stock market. Something like that is what we saw back in 2008, where the peak of the VIX came several months before the bottom of the S&P 500. It's interesting that you point out the importance of liquidity at this moment, and we have seen that echoed in the headlines and echoed from policymakers as well. The notion, and we've been on about this for a while, that it's about providing a bridge of funding to corporations to get through this period where the U.S. economy is effectively locked down. Now, you're correct that the variety of new programs, including the Fed's foray into buying corporate bonds, at least on the investment grade side, are largely designed to provide a lot of liquidity. But the sledgehammer to that scalpel is the fact that the Fed did take policy rates to zero. That's stimulative outside of simply a liquidity issue. And add into that the reality that the Fed is fully engaged in QE and, frankly, a limitless QE for the foreseeable future. That has intuitively played out in a bid for inflation protection, which we saw in the tips market. While inflation expectations haven't come roaring back as we would have typically anticipated, we are starting to see some more traditional signs that the amount of stimulus being forced through the system is eventually going to have inflationary repercussions. One other point that I'd make is that the Fed's gone through their recession playbook, meaning cut to zero, start QE, launch forward guidance. They've gone through most of their 2008 crisis playbook. This is a lot of these funding facilities. And now we're on to a brave new world of the 2020 crisis framework. And one program that's going to be very important to watch was described by Powell this week in his TV interview, where he noted that the Fed is willing to lend 10 to 1 against equity injections from the Treasury. Now, the Treasury has promised $450 billion for those equity injections and capital backstops. This means that the Fed has kind of indicated they're willing to do another 
four and a half trillion dollars in these special purpose vehicle lendings that would be more targeted to the real economy, meaning households, corporates, small businesses. That's a brand new product and one that in terms of the real economy impact of monetary policy substantially differentiates today versus the expectation for a return to the 09 2010-2011 lethargic rebound. One of my primary concerns about that style of program, and this is a worry that we share here on the team, is is lending at this point the correct thing for the Fed and the government to be doing? If you're a small business or even a medium-sized business, you have an indefinite shutdown ahead of you. One thing that you can do is you can let go as many people as you need to hunker down, continue to service your existing debt, or go back to your landlord and or creditors and negotiate a bridge, call it a month, two months, maybe three months, or you can take on additional debt that you will now owe to the government, albeit at attractive financing rates, presumably, and as you pointed out, John, creating even more liquidity and leverage in the system. And the assumption is that one would then retain their core employee base during that period. That's great. It's a reasonable way for the Fed to incentivize small and medium-sized businesses to limit the impact of the overall labor market. But when you emerge on the other side, what do you have? You have another significant obligation that you owe to now the federal government. Why not then simply lay off as many employees early in the process so they can have access to the now increased unemployment benefit and then ride out the storm on the hopes that when the economy does reopen, that you can ramp up production more dramatically and not have a new debt overhang. So Ian, it sounds like what you're describing there is in a way, cutting out the middleman for employees' access to federal funds, whether that be taking on debt from the government in order to pay your bills, make payroll, etc. What you're suggesting rather is by implementing layoffs, that allows the labor force to go directly to these enhanced unemployment benefits, thereby not running the risk of being over-levered to the government when eventually we do come out the other side of this. Yes, but the obvious problem there is that unemployment benefits in terms of the actual dollar amount for the vast majority of the labor force are not going to be an adequate replacement of their current income. And I think that's the issue that Congress is trying to address by increasing the payouts for some aspects of the unemployment benefits. And at the end of the day, so is the Fed in attempting to keep businesses open with employee ranks unchanged at this moment, at least. It's interesting that we've actually also seen several major money center banks, at least, come out and say they are implementing not only a moratorium on hiring, but also a moratorium on letting people go. That is a clear indication of an acknowledgement of this risk that's in the market, and we will see how that all plays out over the course of the next three or four weeks. And this brings up a question that I'll pose to both of you, and that is, Further down the line, sometime in the second half, when fingers crossed this crisis is behind us, how real is the risk that walking back these measures, these massive liquidity injections, these loans from the government, how big is the risk that when the Fed eventually starts to pull this back and maybe even begins tapering QE or even hiking rates, is there a risk that the central bank triggers another round of recessionary fears? 
Well, if the Fed scales back the amount of stimulus that they put in the system too quickly, that's obviously going to reignite recessionary concerns. My baseline assumption is that the Fed's going to be buying bonds for the foreseeable future as well. Now, how long does that last? That certainly through 2020 is that through the balance of 2021, a lot of that comes down to the performance of inflation as well as the real economy. Now, the ancillary programs that the Fed has implemented, such as commercial paper liquidity and the corporate bond program, those have a different aspect to them. It's a utilization issue. If they are fully utilized and continue to be fully utilized into 2021, I'd be very surprised if the Fed was willing to scale those programs down. The flip side is, and this is kind of how I see the scenario playing out, is that there's a lot of uptake in the very beginning, which we've already started to see some evidence of. And as the economy returns, whatever version that ends up being, we will see some of those emergency programs start to become less and less utilized, and the Fed will allow them to simply trail off. But that's not a six-month process. That is an 18 to 24-month process. And that's by design. You know, the Fed has designed a lot of these different liquidity injections so that they're at a not punitive rate, but not a super attractive rate. You know, if you look at the commercial paper facility, it's OIS plus 100, 200 basis points. The money market facility is the discount window plus 100 basis points. The primary market corporate facility is the market plus 100 basis points. Now, the reason why that nuance is incredibly important is that means when you're in a stressed environment, sure, you're willing to pay up that 100, 200 basis points in order to intermediate that liquidity. However, and Ian, this is exactly your point, when things calm down, all of a sudden that is way too high of a rate. So you're naturally going to see a reduction in take up by design because the pricing is frankly not all that attractive. What I do think the next adjustment in terms of a pullback, even though it's not really a pullback, will be the Fed will reduce the aggressiveness of their treasury purchases. This doesn't mean that treasury QE is going to zero. It just means that we shouldn't expect $75 billion per day ad infinitum. You know, If they keep doing that, that's over $1.6 trillion per month. So instead, the question is, when do they go from 75 to call it like 50? And to me, what they've indicated, the reason for being so aggressive is to fix market functioning issues. So in the treasury market, how might they think about market functioning issues? If they see sustained tight bid ass spreads, especially in benchmarks and some off the runs, increase depth of book for liquidity provision in the interdealer markets, and then normalized futures bases. This was a big thing that called them into action a couple weeks ago, as well as more normal spline errors across the curve, indicating a healing of the off the run market. It's those kind of things that would help them feel comfortable to pull back from the extraordinary $75 billion per day to something that would be more like $100 billion per month. Even that $100 billion per month would still be faster than they ever really went in the 2009, 2010, 2011 period, but wouldn't be as incredibly dramatic as what they're doing now. John, and to your point, the Fed has done a admirable job in providing that backstop of liquidity. Eventually, it will need to be scaled out. 
mapping that paradigm to what we have seen play out in risk assets, I think, is very important because the depths of the correction in equities are at least on the margin a function of the fact that that was one of the last liquid markets that people could use to raise cash. There's an argument that the SEC should have closed the equity market, but the flip side of that is the liquidity that investors were able to take out of equities provided a buffer for the banking system. So I could very easily have envisioned a situation where the equity market was closed, investors needed to raise cash to make payrolls, and it would very quickly become a strain on the overall banking system to take the amount of capital that was taken out of the equity market. So to a large extent, by keeping the functionality of markets in place, it did protect the extremes for the banking system. Now, as that relates to the earlier question, have we seen a low for stocks or not? Using the assumption that the equity market created a temporary liquidity buffer, one might say those extremes, call it 2100 in the S&P 500, will mark the low and have less to do with the economic reality and more to do with the dash for cash. Rather than a dash for cash, shouldn't it be more like a march for cash? Oh, it's still March. Q1, almost over. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will once again be faced with the realities of the coronavirus and the implications for the real economy. Now, we have seen a dismal initial jobless claims print north of 3 million, which certainly does suggest that the unemployment rate in the U.S. will be swinging higher very soon. Just for that single week, our back of the envelope estimate is that it will increase the unemployment rate by 2%. Assuming that we have a few more weeks of that magnitude, it will be safe to pencil in a 4 to 5% increase in the unemployment rate. Now, the temporary nature of the hit to the employment market is soon to become the focal point of analysis. On one side, if this is a correction, insofar as once we get back to a new version of full employment, there are still more displaced workers, then that's one thing. If it is more akin to a natural disaster, which has a distinct hit and rebound, then it's reasonably safe to assume that we will get the unemployment rate back to roughly where we ended 2019. The obvious question that this raises is how long will it take? Now, we've been emphasizing the notion that there will be lost consumption that is simply never regained. But the offset of that does come in the form of a great deal of monetary policy and fiscal stimulus that we've seen announced over the course of the last week. So if we do find an economy that is able to get back to work and see the resumption of at least somewhat comparable production, then the assumption that this will be a temporary, albeit very disruptive, episode would hold. The broader concern, and this is the one that really took hold of markets in the beginning of March, was that this is going to lead to another strain on the banking system comparable to the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Our base case assumption is that the 
banking system is in much better shape than it was at that period in time, if for no other reason than the regulatory changes that occurred as a result. The biggest unknown in this regard is how long does this assumption take to either be proven correct or incorrect. We'll be watching layoff figures, unemployment numbers, credit spreads, and of course, the increasing number of bankruptcies as this point in economic history continues to play out. In terms of trading levels in the treasury market, we've been watching 10 and 30 year yields coil within a very definable range and one that frankly suggests a remarkable lack of volatility compared to what we saw in the beginning of March. The front end of the yield curve, however, remains clearly anchored to about 25 basis points in two year yields. We have seen negative treasury rates, specifically in bills, and that is very consistent with the dash for cash that we have been emphasizing during the last week or two. Beyond those realities, there's very little that we expect in terms of treasury market moves other than simply to respond to the developments on the coronavirus side as well as any implications for domestic equities and credit spreads. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As the dramatic price action of the last week reinforces the 24-hour nature of the U.S. rates market, we're reminded that we make more mistakes by 7 a.m. than most people do all day. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. 
No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.